Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts that guide the global pork industry. Today's episode is brought to you by sponsors like SwineWeb.com, your one-stop destination for all of the latest swine news, commentary, videos, events, and industry hot topics in animal health and feed. Log on to SwineWeb.com today. And Innovative Heating, the manufacturer of Hog Hearth, the most energy-efficient and only antimicrobial heat mat for the swine industry. Reduce maintenance costs and lower your electric bill today. For more information, visit hoghearth.com. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're going to talk about technology and teamwork in addressing COVID-19. Joining me today is Mr. Philip Horde. How are you doing today, Phil? Doing well, thanks. As good as I can be, I guess. How about you today? I've been doing pretty good. I've been uh, quarantined the last couple days, but been out and about as well, so it's, it's not too terrible. Uh, kind of today, I want to start about just talking through the history of Horde Family Farms. How, how did it get started and what were some of the highs and lows? But just starting out, uh, if you can maybe just introduce yourself a second here before we get into that, that'd be great. Sure, yes. Um, yeah, my name is Phil Horde. I uh, work with my family. Uh, we are uh, five uh, generations strong now of uh, pork producers. We're located in Ohio. And uh, I have a wife and an almost one-year-old. So I guess when it comes to the story of Horde Family Farms, where, where did it start? I know you said fifth generation, but where did it start? Uh, when did it really start to grow? And uh, how did it become one of the largest family-run pig operations in the world? Absolutely. Yeah. So if we think back to the early 1900s, my great-great-grandfather, his name was Guy. Uh, What a great name, right? His name is Guy. Um, He purchased uh, (laughs) some land, and and that would be the uh, beginning of the lineage that we can trace it back further, but we're kind of saying, hey, we actually still own uh, that land today, and he uh, ended up uh, growing to tend over 500 acres of uh, row crops, and he had a fruit orchard and also had some animals, and, and those animals included pigs too. And um, one of his sons, uh, which his name was Robert M. Hord, um, he would be my great-great-grandfather. Uh, so the first guy would be my, my triple-great-grandfather. Um, he would be uh, definitely uh, the... Uh, first one that would be basically starting out with any number of pigs. He raised them in a wooded lot. Um, and it's really interesting if you think about it. Um, again, Robert M. would be my uh, great-grandfather, and he uh, raised those uh, hogs that he got from his, his father. And uh, during the time back in, uh, during the World War II era, he actually um, had those 82 hogs ready to go to market. And at the time, there was a ceiling of, on hog prices of uh, about 16 to 18, right, right in there since. Um, and so just before those hogs were sold, you know, he thought he was going to sell them, wasn't going to make anything off of them. And just as they were ready to be sold, um, he was able to sell them for 32 cents a pound. And so actually used that profit to buy one of our first farms. 
um, what we call our home farm today. It's really where things got started. Um, one of his sons, my grandfather, Robert uh, Dwayne, they call him Dwayne. He um, and my great-grandfather and my dad, you know, kind of all worked together and uh, started raising more pigs. We were up to maybe a few hundred at this point. And uh, my dad really took to liking it. You know, it was kind of one of his things that he really enjoyed the animals. He enjoyed learning. There was a lot of, uh, during that, you know, his lifetime, my dad's lifetime, it was um, something that was just starting to come around where people were starting to raise animals in larger groups and in larger group sizes and really starting to make a larger business out of it. And um, so it wasn't right until uh, about the, the mid-80s, uh, mid to late 80s, um, that they really started to grow the, the herd to any number of animals. It's They started accumulating uh, several hundred animals. Um, they built their first uh, commercial-grade sow farm. Um, once my dad, Pat, graduated high school, he really took off. And so really the business has grown the last 30 years or so. Uh, when we look at the timeline of growth and where we've been able to um, you know, accomplish things today. And I'm happy to report that my grandfather um, is still involved. My my grandfather and my grandmother and my parents, my wife and one of my sisters are involved in the business, as well as one of my uncles, uh, one of my uh, dad's sister's husbands. He works in uh, South Farm Management with us. And um, it's, it's a cool family business to be a part of. Uh, when you mention what it's like to be part of, you know, one of the largest uh, family-run pig farms in the world. I, I don't really think about it that way a lot of times, but I guess statistics would say that we would be in the top few hundred in the world. And, um, you know, I always answer the question about bigness or vastness, or that's a lot of number of hogs with the answer of, you know, it, it's never been about how many and or striving to be the biggest. Um, you know, that really wasn't the goal, I don't think, if I as I talk with my family and we, we look back at the history of it, it was never about that. It was more, how can we, you know, sure there were times of uncomfortability and um, when we were in, in major growth phase, uh, you know, those were t- tough times and things we worked through, but it was never about how many could we have. And, you know, I think it's always been more about quality and excellence. And today I think that size, um, you know, in my opinion, size is necessary in a commodity scenario to maintain a level of, uh, of ability to be competitive. Um, so there's definitely a balance there, but uh, I guess that's a quick little overview for you there. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it's really fascinating to kind of hear how the, how the business grew and how, how it was passed along. And then how, how really once your dad graduated high school and kind of moved things into the modern era of pork production, how you guys were able to scale this from, maybe a few thousand to, to, to right around 30,000 and now be able to compete with some of the larger operations. And it's gotta be, it's gotta be really rewarding to be able to work with your family every day. Even if there's some challenges that may come with that, I'm sure that's a reward in itself. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's always fun things to work through in family. You know, I think anyone that's worked in a family business or, you know, even worked with their family in a business that isn't theirs, you know, it's, there's always challenges, but I think that's a, it's very rewarding. You said that, you know, hit the nail on the head there. So what uh, keeps you up at night being a fifth generation pork producer? How do you see things and uh, what, 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 what are the things that concern you day to day? 
sure. You know, I, I really think that, um, it comes down to, you know, we don't know what's next and, um, you know, we're taking this, uh, a day at a time, you know, I, I think right now and, and even, but I guess before COVID really what, um, and, and still now, but before COVID and, you know, kind of before all this craziness happened, uh, my role was, you know, I was working on how to add value and to help improve the business. And, um, you know, those things such as cost reduction and working on return on investment, production improvement, um, it's a fun area to be in because um, I'm naturally connected to most areas of the business and have a long, you know, have the opportunity to work alongside my family and our key team members uh, who have been in the trenches for the long haul. And so really when we're faced with challenges, um, and, and maybe people in agriculture can relate, right, because we have challenges from a lot of different angles in terms of, you know, in the swine industry, we think of challenges, disease challenges, it's not something we're kind of always on heightened awareness of. It's something we're always looking at. We're always testing animals um, to ensure, uh, you know, to know their status. What What is uh, we dealing with? And uh, mitigation has always been kind of part of our our DNA, right, trying to, to mitigate disease. So, you know, a lot of it was, was natural to us when we started looking at what we needed to do. Um, and, you know, I guess... Uh, when we think back to um, when things first started, right? When we first started hearing about COVID, uh, I think some of, you know, agriculture people in, in the swine industry were probably naturally some of the first to begin noticing or paying more attention to it um, because of the African swine fever, you know, and that had already been ravaging China for a while. And, you know, this was one of our many potential uh, roadblocks to the U.S. exporting significantly more pork to that country. And then, you know, look, you add a world pandemic to the mix and obviously things could get a lot more ugly. But, um, you know, I, I could go into some detail there on what we um, did as a, on our farm, if that would be something you'd be interested in. Yeah, when when you think about everything that you did, to respond to COVID-19 and because you are in the swine industry, you had a little bit of a heads up. How did that affect that? And what did you guys do? Yeah, sure. We, you know, as a business, we started discussing uh, this more heavily as a management team back in late February. You know, we started hearing rumblings of this um, in China, you know, around the first of the year, some reports well before that. Um, there's speculation, you know, we didn't really get a lot of information at that time. And then, you know, um, we started meeting regularly uh, around the first part of March. And it's kind of hard to believe that that was really only six or eight weeks ago since this really started getting traction and became a real thing. It kind of feels like an eternity at this point. But, um, you know, what we did is began uh, putting a team together. We call it our COVID-19 uh, task force and began making plans. Uh, one of the first things that we did, uh, as many did and were instructed to by their uh, government authorities, was to implement new disinfection protocols uh, for shared team member spaces um, and, and shared surfaces, you know, things that people were commonly touching and going through some protocols on, on glove wearing and things like that. Um, and, and we were also early in the timeline of beginning to mandate temperature taking at the beginning of shifts. Um, currently at our South Farm locations, we have 
uh, metadata temperature uh, taking at uh, the start of the day and recording of that. Um, and then here we fast forward a few weeks where uh, have provided masks as well for team members. Um, but, you know, as the virus has continued to spread and um, time has went on, we've also changed up our South Farm team schedules quite dramatically. Um, so to, you know, kind of reduce the potential contact as much as possible, we split up individual farm teams into two different teams. So what may have been a group of nine people or eight people um, on a 2,500 head South Farm would now split into groups of four or five and uh, they're now working 12-hour shifts, four days on and four days off. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a, initially we were worried what this would do for team morale and dedication, and um, but we've been kind of blown away by our team's response in the crisis and the ability to keep getting the work done and getting it done with excellence. And, you know, by all means, sure, there's been some issues to work through, but I think this is uh, one you know, example or way for us to continue working as an essential business by trying to figure out ways that we can maintain and continue operating while also providing more protection for our team members by limiting the amount of people that they're around each day. And, you know, from a management standpoint, it also provides a little redundancy, right, um, in the event that uh, one person from one of those two teams would get uh, sick or become ill. Um, that would still leave us with uh, half of the team that would be uh, able to work and then we would be able to supplement the other uh, team that, that went ill or, or became ill. And so it, it reduced our exposure to how many team members we would need in the event that, you know, so unfortunately someone may become positive. So what have been the most so, difficult challenges that your teams have had to face in splitting shifts like that? Yeah, I, for us, I think a lot of it came down to we were initially very worried about childcare. Uh, we have uh, quite a few younger team members, and so naturally we were worried what that would do to their family structure. Um, you know, we have some individuals that may not have family in the area, or we have, um, you know, maybe some single parents where that provides uh, a challenge to them. But um, and we were fully prepared to uh, to work out what was needed. You know, at the time. And child cares, you know, were closing. And um, in Ohio, the, the governor uh, was able to mandate some emergency uh, essential uh, type uh, child care centers where these uh, child cares could stay open and be um, a, set, a place for people that were working in essential industries to begin or to, to be able to still send their kids there. And um, so that was one of our initial challenges we worked through. You know, the other one would be um, normally, our team members weren't working 12-hour shifts and weren't working four days in a row. So by that fourth day, would they be, you know, pretty tired? And yeah, um, sure, you know, a few of them were, and we got feedback that, hey, my feet are hurting a little bit. And, you know, but by and large, I think, um, you know, beyond working through some of the just naturally changing up the schedules, uh, people have been pretty receptive to it. That's pretty neat. No, it's neat to see because from a little bit of insight, how how well your teams banded together and worked together through all of this, and, and it does seem like it's going really well. When when we talk about the meetings and everything producers are going through right now, uh, there are a lot of meetings that are out there. It just feels like every time something changes, which seems to be day by day, a new meeting pops up. How, how do you navigate through all of those meetings? Choose the ones that are the most beneficial and worth your time. 
Yeah, it, you know, internal meetings, we have chosen to obviously very, very much prioritize those. And as a management team, it felt like there couldn't be enough meetings on the front end of this um, as we were trying to get things figured out. Uh, now that it's been several weeks, uh, we're starting to hear from uh, industry groups, you know, uh, vendors, uh, suppliers, you know, people wanting to reach out to help or maybe they have a product they feel like could be useful and you know, those we've just been taking those as we can and as we feel like the, the necessary to join um, meetings that have been very beneficial for those on our task force committee have been those with other businesses uh, within this industry as well as outside the industry to learn what they're doing. And, um, you know, I think there's been a lot of information sharing. I have a, a tomorrow actually with um, some of our producer partners from the the cold water packing group that we sell to and we're kind of just going to share what we've been able to do in each of our businesses to see if we can continue supporting each other in that way. Um, but, you know, again, by and large, internal meetings are certainly prioritized and, um, you know, we've been, been meeting weekly, um, if not more than that. Uh, you know, we've been monitoring the situation and continuing to make changes based off of new information. Um, the Ohio uh, Governor, actually, Governor DeWine is doing daily press conferences. Um, I'm not sure if, if every governor is doing that, but he kind of set the precedence of doing this early on. And um, that's been really helpful to kind of get updated information every single day. And he's been doing those sometimes on the weekends as well. So it's not just been during the week. And that's been very helpful. Um, you know, another thing that's been really something on our minds and something we were trying to be very intentional about was having centralized communication um, being put out from that group versus having each individual department be putting their own information out. And, you know, like I mentioned before, kind of always adapting and seeking ways to improving what we had already established and being nimble enough to make changes with new information. Right. So, yeah. So, so can you provide some perspective around for those who maybe aren't a part of the swine industry or haven't been as in tune to what's going on, what pork producers are going through right now as of like this last week? I mean, we're seeing a lot of meat processing facilities shut down just between the Tyson and Smithfield plant. I think it's 6% of all U.S. pork that's processed is shut down. So we're seeing a lot of different strategies to address that. Can you maybe allude to some of the things that that you're seeing and, and what you're doing to try to solve them? Yeah, sure. You know, fortunately for us in our situation where we're, we're selling to, um, we've seen um, a reduction in the number of pigs that we've been able to sell. Um, but fortunately the plants have been able to uh, continue operating at a, um, you know, a little bit slightly lower capacity, but um, still have not, you know, shut the doors completely. So, um, you know, we could argue back and forth on what's most beneficial for all stakeholders involved, but um, you know, obviously for, for our business, getting hogs to market and getting them there timely is, is super important. So, um, you know, we've seen weeks where we've been 20, 30, you know, percent lower market hogs going to market. Um, and obviously I've heard of others being way more than that. Some haven't seen any, you know, potential issues, but I think, you know, when I think about this topic, I think for those of us that are younger and that haven't been a part of a crash or of a, a pandemic of this measure during our careers, it's all about learning and, 
watching history repeat itself in a way and how we can avoid some of what has happened during past uh, issues within the industry and, and crashes such as this. You know, I think preparedness, um, producers are in a huge wide range of financial situations. You know, some have been in the middle of huge growth uh, phases and may have limited working capital. Um, others, you know, have been holding back on growth or have been kind of foreseeing and planning for something like this. I think naturally uh, many of the, of the producers that we talked to, I think ASF was a, a um, ASF preparedness was uh, a huge um, factor in the amount of growth that was happening or maybe just some of the decisions they were making um, in that regard. And so as much, you know, as it been, has it been possible uh, to plan for a downturn, obviously we, we can't plan for everything. And so, um, you know, I think in terms of, you know, I think about this when we, we look at, there's just too many hogs on the market. People have been foreseeing this for a long time. And, you know, in all due respect, we are all extremely exposed to this issue as an industry. Um, and the moment that a pandemic and, and an outbreak like this comes that takes away significant domestic demand or, you know, and our ability to process hogs. And um, I guess we were lucky to get both of those things at the same time, right? So all I can really say is that it's, it's tough and I'm not afraid to say there's been times of serious worry and doubt and, and whatnot, but faith and family are things that we talk a lot about around here and as hard as it can be during these times and going forward, remembering uh, what is most essential without being punny um, is, is really essential during this time um, is, is what I keep reminding myself of. So when you speak to faith and family and uh, kind of some of the, the worry that comes around everything going on, there's obviously ways to, that some people are, are using to distract themselves from some of those things. But what are you doing when you're not, when you're not working and you're trying to distract yourself and kind of relax and decompress or, you you watching Netflix with your family? What are you, what are you what are you doing? <laughs> yes, we are. We uh, we recently jumped on the bandwagon and and watched um, Tiger King. So that was definitely oh. interesting. Uh, that's not, a, that's I'm an not interesting sure show. If you've watched that. <laughs> yes, yeah, I have. Um, I've been watching some of that. You know, my my uh, degree is actually in finance, so I've been actually taking some time to get back into doing a little uh, after hours investing and looking at that. You know, if you look at, uh, if, if we're expecting the economy to kind of come back, obviously lots of different projections on how long that will take, but a lot of stocks are at a bargain right now. So uh, for those listening, it might be advantageous to take some savings and, and get into some good companies that feel like might have a great opportunity to rebound. So yeah, those are a few things I've been doing, I would say. Yeah, I've been looking a lot at the airline stocks to figure out what might go on with those. But yeah, there's a lot of unknowns, and you're right. There, there's a lot of things that are bargain right now. Yeah, so yeah, when, it's hard to to know what will will rebound quickly or or fast, or you know what's going to really come about. Yeah, airlines obviously have been been hit very very hard. The whole travel industry has has been tanking. So. So when we think about technology and its integration within the swine industry, uh, to kind of take a, a turn on, on the conversation, uh, what are some of the things that are working and what are some of the things that are not? Sure. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a, a huge topic. I think could probably be part of a whole other discussion, and you know, in general. But I'm and extremely even, bullish on, yeah, yeah. Even even just and, and how some of this might be helping with COVID nineteen because right now everybody's switching to Zoom calls. A lot of people are doing uh, um, leveraging technology to be more remote. I mean, when we're looking at technology on South Farms that's integrated in the swine industry. What what's helping during COVID nineteen and and maybe what's what's not? Yeah, I mean we're in the process of installing um, some TVs and cameras in South Farm so we can do more remote meetings. I know for some integrators, larger integrators, that maybe that was already a capability they had. Um, you know that's obviously nothing super new, but uh, being in more remote areas, you know, internet has been a challenge. There's been lots of interesting challenges to work through when. Um, working remotely and uh, wanting to, to still have teams be connected. Um, yeah, but you, you hit the nail on the head. You know, Zoom calls have been huge. Been doing a lot more remote meetings. Um, we've, you know, I mentioned we've had a, a few uh, meetings today um, with our team and one of them with, was with our South Farm team. Everyone called in on the Zoom call and we were discussing some things uh, there. So it's, very important to stay connected during this time and we realize that early on is people get are, are a lot more fearful when they don't hear what's going on or when they don't think they have an understanding of what you're thinking or what what is currently happening so for instance in that call today we explained the state of the industry some people read more news or are more connected than others um, you know but in general uh, most of those people don't, you know, aren't staying up to date on that stuff. So it's our opportunity to give them um, our perspective on the industry. You know, we, we discussed some of the things that we've been able to do from a financial standpoint to ensure the stability of their jobs and be able for them to explain that to their teams. Um, so there's, you know, it's very powerful to stay connected. So I would say during COVID, um, that's definitely been one of the um, key points is to, to maintain that communication. But I would say in general, you know, I think I'm, I'm obviously, we're, we're younger guys, right? Um, we're really bullish on tech. Um, I think there's a lot of, uh, really cool things that are being worked on and, you know, that, that can come our way. We've been exposed to various technology in farms over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, right? Um, and there's been some improvements to those with the, new smart controllers and app access and remote bin monitoring and things like that for finishing. Um, but, you know, what I'm more talking about is I think there's more innovation happening around things that have not been thought through or fully developed into a, a working or real product and concept. And, you know, I think that's exciting. It's a, it's a huge opportunity. And I think what you guys are doing at Swine Tech and innovating a new product to help save piglets lives from crushing um, an amazing innovation there. We're excited to be part of learning with you on your product. And it was obviously a, a an answer, a potential answer to a huge problem that's existed for generations. Um, you know, I, I think of things such as pig counting and artificial intelligence to predict, uh, you know, health breaks before they happen and uh, monitoring health status, looking at market pig weights. Um, robotics, you know, some of these things have been around and maybe uh, we're early on and now I feel like we look at the next five years and we're going to have uh, way more uh, developments in this uh, tech space and, and artificial intelligence and how can we utilize 
uh, big data to make decisions um, for each animal. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of things coming to fruition right now, especially when you start talking about predicting diseases over at the University of Minnesota, what they're doing with, with PED and what they're trying to do with PERS is just, yeah, that's fascinating. And you've got uh, Tammy Brown Randall over at uh, Nebraska doing some computer vision and growth monitoring of, of uh, finishing pigs. I don't think there's ever been more tech that's been going on. I think it's just a matter of when can this tech be commercially viable and uh, feasible yeah. to adopt uh, from a cost standpoint. How do you see that from when looking at new tech and cost and do you think that's one of the bigger barriers to adoption? For some companies, it certainly is. Um, for us, you know, innovation is one of our five core values, and we intentionally set aside or, you know, kind of determine some dollars that we're going to spend on working to help develop some things. You know, I think that's, I look back to um, many things that we didn't really know if it was going to work and we're going to be a part of the the process of, of helping make it work or help be part of that um, development process. And, you know, there's some things that are worth spending your time on, on that. And then there's others that are just too new. And so I guess my challenge to my peers in the industry or those listening is if you have the opportunity to be a part of making decisions to, to look at something or not, um, I think it's, uh, it's been rewarding for me. I, I've been a part of several projects that failed. I was recently, um, within the last year involved with a, a biosecurity tracking project, you know, great people were involved, um, but just the technology wasn't working how it was supposed to. And, you know, that's when I left off earlier. But when we talk about tracking people and tracking um, vehicles and tracking objects and things that are moving from farm to farm, you know, that technology exists. It already exists. So how can we use what already exists and you know, I say it's simple because I'm not a programmer and I know nothing about software, but it's just like, you know, that, for instance, um, it's already already in existence. How do we continue uh, adapting it to our industry? And some of these companies, I think, have been um, really interested in, in seeing how they can adapt something to our industry. But um, it also takes that partner on the, the farm side or on the producer side to be willing to do that. And yeah, sometimes that's, that is investment. Um, but I do think that at least for me, um, it's been very rewarding to be a part of those projects, even if they don't make it, um, just to, to be involved in the process and keep learning. And, you know, I've, I have confidence that a lot of those things will be certainly worked out within my lifetime. So what do you think the future of the swine industry look, looks like? I mean, you have been highly involved with new technologies. You've been around as a family for many generations. What do you think the future looks like? Uh, next question. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, this is a, one of the hardest questions I think that um, I get asked in the industry. You know, it's no one knows, obviously, but I think when we talk about, you know, if we get back into our, our micro situation here as far as, there's too many hogs and not enough spaces to uh, for them to be processed and harvested. Um, it's obvious that the packer producer model is beginning to look more like the chicken boiler industry. And will that completely transition? You know, I obviously don't know. 
um, as our business, we have chosen to be um, a partner with our packer and look for ways to add value um, to what they're already doing and come alongside and learn what their goals are um, so that we can help be a part of that conversation. Um, you know, this sometimes can rub people the wrong way due to the traditional <laughs> cat dog fight that many discuss that happens with the producer packer. But, you know, if you look at other industries, I believe there's still room for us to coexist, you know, for each of us to do what we do best. Uh, when I think about this, you know, I have a, a college buddy that uh, works in manufacturing of mirrors for vehicles, right? Um, huge industry working on providing parts for vehicles. You know, there's those, a lot of times those companies can be bought up by the larger um, uh, producer of automobile, automobile, but there's still these, you know, hundreds and thousands of these companies that are producing something that will be used for the end product. And, you know, I, I think that um, there's still room for, for this model to exist. And I guess my point is, is that most people in this industry are either helping raise the animal or, you know, harvest and sell the product. But both are very essential, right? And um, again, we have found ways to become connected with the end buyers of our meat, even though we're not processing and selling it ourselves. So retailers, you know, food uh, service, we've got, you know, we've had the opportunity to be in a room with billion dollar, you know, food companies. And they're honestly trying to understand how do they source products that they can sell to their consumer and tell the story of agriculture. And um, they're genuinely interested in how the animal is raised and what the process is on the farm. And so this is the story that I like to tell. And um, this further connection and understanding throughout the food chain, I believe, will be the future. It is the future. It's here now, but I think it's going to keep expanding. It's going to keep, um, it's going to run deep. You know, we're, we're going to have more traceability. Let's be open to that. Let's help be a part of the, the process of making that great. You know, that's already happening in, in many industries where we're tracing, but, you know, there's, there's some really cool technology that's being worked on that, that can help trace. Um, and, you know, those things are going to have to be what we embrace, right? Because we're, we're not able to each go out and sell to a consumer anymore. You know, there's tons of amazing niche businesses that raise products where we can direct sell. Um, there's large companies that are doing direct selling via, via e-commerce, but having that per personal relationship with your farmer is becoming harder and harder in today's world and it has been. So how do we help take, again, data that already exists, how do we get it into the hands of the consumer for them to feel more comfortable about where they're buying their food? And so I think that that comes back into play when we start talking about how can we still be a part of the, ch the, the chain um, while producing pork in a commodity market. No, that's really great insight. And, and uh, I, I think, I think I'm hearing that enough over and over and over for it to really be coming to fruition in, in regards to where everybody feels like things are going. Uh, when you, when you, so you've kind of talked about your family's history, how you've come to where you are, how you've addressed COVID-19, how you see technology helping and, and where you see technology in general, and then also where you kind of see the industry heading. Uh, when you think about just one, one golden nugget to offer all the people listening, what would it be? 
You know, the thing that I have really tried to do is to keep learning. You know, I, my golden nugget is probably pretty unexciting, but I, I have observed and I've learned from, you know, very accomplished people in this world that if they do not keep an open mind and do not keep learning and adapting that, um, you know, that, that is a, a direct ticket to, to failure, the long term. And I think the reason why I brought up some of the things that I did was because sometimes there's some folks in our industry um, who want to keep things the way that they have been, you know, and so call us millennials, you know, call us whatever, we keep wanting to change things. But the reality is, is that um, you know, we, we first, we've seen what happens when those people that are not willing to change, what exactly the outcome of that is. And so I've observed people being willing to keep learning even at late in their careers. And to me, you know, learning, learning is huge. Establishing strong relationships amongst uh, your team and folks within the industry can be very rewarding. Um, I love sharing and helping on each other um, that, you know, that aspect is runs deep in, in farming and in agriculture in general. Um, you know, I would hate for us to lose sight of that. Um, you know, and I guess one thing that I'll leave you with is I had a college uh, leadership mentor that had the acronym of own it. Um, and I'll go through each of those. It's open to changing growth, wrestle with ideas and concepts, never compromise the important and involve others. And finally t- having total commitment. And I have that posted in my office and I can't think of, you know, five better ways to continue, um, you know, even during really hard times is, you know, be open to change and growth, you know, wrestle with these ideas and concepts, um, you know, never compromise what is important, right? In this case, people are the most important and what is most important after people? It's pigs. Um, you know, involving others, like I talked earlier, involving our team, um, keeping, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say that we're in some of the lowest uh, turnover rates that we've been. You know, we, even before COVID, I think that um, that's been a, a huge thing. Um, we've been trying very hard. You know, it's hard to toot your horn when you hear of people having uh, issues with that. And, and by all means, we have our issues too, but um, having a team that's committed, especially during these times, um, you know, is, is super important. And we've been so blessed and grateful to have, uh, have a team and have growing partners that are willing to walk alongside us in times uh, of stress and at times of uncertainty like we are in today. No, thanks for sharing that, that sharing what you, uh, you got from your professor and what you have up on your wall that's that's really fascinating the whole own it model i i remember growing up my grandpa always had a picture of a of a crane eating a frog and it was choking the crane on the way down its throat and it said never give up and so it's it's funny how little <laughs> things like that stick with you but it matters and i appreciate you sharing yes. that with us and i really appreciate you taking the time to hop on the podcast here today and to share your expertise with us it, it really means a lot to at least myself and I believe it means a lot to a lot of people who are listening. Sure. No, thanks for having me and stay well. And and I hope to uh, talk with you again soon.
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. Therefore, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com and subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are available. Today's episode is brought to you by sponsors like SwineTech. Leverage the power of computer vision, voice recognition, and real-time behavioral monitoring to reduce mortalities and labor inefficiencies in the farrowing house. For more information, visit swinetechnologies.com.